Good morning, everybody. My name is Don Campbell. I'm Global Manager of Government and Public Affairs for Chevron's downstream and technology companies. I'm here to uh, give you a little bit of information about Chevron, uh, our support for this uh, great conference, um, a little bit about our point of view about energy and energy policy to kind of help set up the discussion that's going to come um, in the panel following uh, my remarks. First of all, uh, Chevron is a California company. We're based up by San Francisco in a small town called San Ramon. It's famous for um, a couple of strip malls, a Chevy's, um, a Starbucks, a steakhouse, and the, th the third largest uh, company in the United States. Uh, we've been in California for 130 years. Uh, we discovered oil here back in the 1870s. Um, and currently, we employ about 10,000 people in the state um, and, and support another 60,000 indirectly. That's, a, that's one in 200 jobs. So we have a major uh, economic impact in California. We generate about $10 billion a year in economic activity. And since 2007 alone, we've supported, uh, we spent about $2 billion um, on small business. We're the only major oil company that has um, a venture capital arm. And we use that venture capital arm to invest in emerging technologies to help with the, with the forefront of energy and energy development. And one example of that is uh, we just unveiled a partnership um, with BrightSource up in an oil field near um, Bakersfield. And we're using solar power to generate steam. And that steam gets injected into this old oil field. Uh, and we use that steam to help produce more and recover more oil from the field. And prior to using solar power, uh, we use natural gas. We burn natural gas to create that steam. And we're actually um, the largest installer of solar power panels in California. We have an energy efficiency business called Chevron Energy Solutions, and we do a lot of work in energy efficiency and solar power, particularly with um, our clients, uh, our government clients, uh, that are looking for... Um, you know, the advantages of predictable energy supply and lower cost. Um, and so uh, just briefly on our Chevron point of view about energy policy and energy policy issues, whenever I get an audience like this, I like to uh, try to uh, let people know what we're thinking and, and where we're heading in terms of our policy and our advocacy. Um, you know, energy policy is a frustrating topic for a lot of us. Uh, we have a lot of bright people in this country trying to figure out a pathway forward um, and in my view, figuring out a, a pathway forward for energy policy is equivalent to figuring out a pathway forward for economic policy. You know, our economy depends upon reliable, abundant, and affordable supply of energy. And it, it, re it relies on all forms of energy, not just oil, not just natural gas. It's going to take all forms of energy to meet our growing demands in the future and to provide that diversity of supply that we require. Now, I know you're thinking this is an oil guy, he's just going to be here to talk about oil issues, but really our point of view is that we do need it all. Uh, and so I want to talk about two quick points. Number one, um, how many people in the room believe that uh, you know, we are far too dependent on foreign supplies of oil for our economy? I mean, it's a pretty common view. In fact, many administrations in the past have been working on this particular issue. But guess what's been happening? We're going in exactly the other direction. In the mid-1980s, we were one of the largest uh, producers of oil in the world, about 9 million barrels a day. Today, we're producing about 5 million barrels of oil a day. So we've gone in the wrong direction. 
while our demand, our consumption, has gone way up. Another point, I mean, what's the critical issue we're all facing today in terms of public policy? It's the economy and it's government spending. I would argue that if we spent a little more time and create a little more access to, de to develop uh, solutions for that first problem, which is domestic supply, we would create more jobs in the United States, we'd generate more revenues for state and federal treasuries, and we would ease some of the burden that we're facing in this particular area. We do need a green economy, but we also need to invest in conventional supplies while that green economy gets to scale, because the scale of the current system today is enormous. If I could leave you with one quick thought as we get ready for this next panel, it would be simply this. Don't suspend your reason to accept a proposed or promised silver bullet. The problems that we face today are complex. The size of the energy system that you're trying to replace overnight is enormous. Remember that energy policy and economic policy are linked. A sound energy policy will help us rebuild a sound U.S. economy. More domestic supplies will create jobs, create badly needed government revenues, and, re and re reduce some of the need that we have for foreign supplies. We need all forms of energy, and our demands are growing. We need all for forms of energy to ensure we have abundant supplies and security of supply. Thank you for listening. I'm looking forward to the next panel. Thank you so much, Don. I am uh, Steve Clemens, Washington Editor-at-Large of The Atlantic, and it's a real pleasure to be with all of you now. Uh, I'm about to introduce, hopefully he will pop up on the screen, a, a good friend, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, um, and sort of the, uh, the guru of the energy profession. There was a song by uh, the singer Eminem once, and in the lyrics of the song he said, you can have the MTV Awards, but it's not a party if I'm not there. You can't really have a big energy conference that is taken seriously unless somehow you, you get Dan Jurgen into it. And we've gone to great lengths to make sure that happens today. Uh, Daniel Jurgen, of course, is chairman of IHS Cambridge Energy Research Associates, uh, won his uh, Pulitzer Prize for a fantastic book uh, written some years ago called The Prize. Uh, he recently did a re-release of that with a new forward and introduction, which we had a conversation which folks can watch on YouTube if you would like. Uh, and today we have Dan joining us from Seattle, uh, where he's moving uh, peripatetically around the country, uh, talking about his brand new book, uh, The Quest, uh, uh, and, and it had energy security and the remaking of the modern world. I want to, before I invite Dan to make a few comments and then go back and forth, just read one bit from a New York Times uh, review. I don't typically read other people's reviews because you don't want to be derivative, but this is such a great line. It says, Dan Jurgen is back with a sequel to the prize. It's called The Quest. And if anything, it's an even better book. It is searching, impartial, and alarmingly up-to-date, uh, getting into things like the, the Fukushima nuclear meltdown in Japan, the political upheavals in Egypt, the killing of Osama bin Laden, etc. Mr. Jurgen Brooks no cant about climate change denial and lingers on the topic of cleaner future fuels. Our heads may be buried in our sleek laptops and gadgets, his masterly book announces, but our toes are still soaking in dirty, morally contaminated oil. I know, Don, this is the New York Times, not the Atlantic uh, reading this, but... Um, I, I do want to do this because I think it's very important, particularly with the panel that's coming up next, 
and Dan's thoughts, and I like to go back and forth with him, to think about a, a realistic track. I used to work in the Senate for Senator Jeff Bingaman, and one of the things when you're up in the Senate is you realize that thinking comprehensively about an energy is not something D.C. does very well. We think about silver bullets. We think about quick fixes in a very complex picture. Anyone who takes a look at the quest realizes Dan Jurgen does not think it's a silver bullet uh, arena. But, Dan, good to have you with us. Well, thank you very much, Steve, and very glad to be with you all. Uh, I know that the Atlantic Meets the Pacific Conference is a very strong conference. Uh, as you say, uh, I'm here on the Pacific, too, just a little farther up the coast. But I should say that uh, I, uh, many reasons I would have liked to have been with you all, but also one I should note that in the quest, uh, La Jolla actually plays a very important role in the story because so much of the original thinking and research that led to the framing of climate as an issue really took place at Scripps and around Scripps, and so uh, you all are in historic ground there. That's great. Dan, in this book, um, you walk through, and you walk through in, 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 in somewhat painstaking detail the various energy options that are out there, uh, trying to sort of think in a very holistic way. I think anyone that, that, that walks away from this, much like Don just shared with us, will walk away from the illusion that there are quick fixes either way from things like oil and natural gas, and that the transitions to, to new sectors there. We had uh, Elon Musk speak to us last night, and he made a, a striking statement. He said that he thought that in 10 years we could have a full transition to electric cars in the U.S. Uh, auto fleet at all levels, from $100,000 cars to probably $10,000 cars, but that he would be disappointed if it didn't happen in 20 years. Is that a realistic statement in your view, given your research and thinking about energy and infrastructure in this country? Well, certainly one has to take what he says very seriously because we've seen what Tesla has, uh, has done and, and the model that it, that it is. I found, uh, to my surprise, when I, the concluding part of the quest really focuses in on what kind of cars you all are going to be driving and we all are going to be driving in 10 and 20 years. And it seems to me it's still uh, an open story that it's going to be a few years yet before it's really clear what the traction for the electric car is. Because remember, it's going to be competing not only with today's cars, but it's also going to be competing with cars that get 54 or 60 or 65 miles to the gallon. With that said, in our kind of our most optimistic scenario, uh, out to 2020, we show that it could be up to 10% of uh, the new automobiles that are sold could be electric. That's the most optimistic scenario, which would be about 3% of the fleet because of the time it takes to roll over. Uh, but then by 2030, as it seems to me, that's the point where you'd start to see a lot more change, and it really depends upon how things develop over the, the next few years. And this is still a, a, a testing period. But it is also quite striking that it's like uh, the beginning of the 21st century has rejoined with the beginning of the 20th century, because if you look in the quest, you'll see this painting of uh, Thomas Edison and Henry Ford in 1896 discussing uh, electric cars versus uh, gasoline-powered cars, and there's a wonderful picture of a woman charging an electric car in 1910 that looks very much like the photograph of the CEO of Nissan, Renault, charging an electric car in 2010. Wow. So as you think about it, anyone that, that has heard you, Dan, before knows that you are not a um, big subscriber to the notion of peak oil and that you think that this question about running out of 
of fossil fuel reserves is not something we need to worry about necessarily in the near term. But nonetheless, you don't walk away from the issue of new technologies and, and energy transitions. What do you think, given the energy profile of the country and the problem with getting a broadly diverse energy supply out to lots of it, what do you think are the most promising technologies that we're looking at today? And, and what about the downside? What are the, what are the um, uh, Quixote... Uh, like worst, whether they're the worst technologies, the least promising technologies. We always talk about the good stuff. Talk about the bad options as well. I think in terms of the way I, I address the book, uh, the first part really focuses in on what you call conventional energy and in a way the, the energy world that we have today, how it came about, how it may change. And the second part focuses on climate change and then the third part on the renewables and alternatives. And I think that if we look at the energy mix today, uh, as was just pointed out, the, the scale of the energy system is so large, our $14 trillion economy rests upon a very large, complex energy system. It isn't going to change quickly. It isn't going to change overnight. And the new technologies need to establish not merely that they work, but that they're competitive at large scale. That's, that's the kind of uh, key criteria. And so the system, I don't think, will change as fast as people, some people may think. Uh, and that probably at least most forecasts when you look out at 2030, based upon what we know today and have to say that, because I think you're going to hear in the panel that follows ideas that, uh, you know, from the left field that can change things, uh, the energy system won't look too different from what it does look today. The real change would come after that. You know, the biggest um, innovation actually the last, couple of decades is actually shale gas, if you look at it in terms of its volume and the way it's really changing the economics of the whole energy system. And although that was, took 25 years of development, it really only burst on the public scene in 2008, and we're still just seeing the effects on everything, and it affects the uh, competitive economics of wind and solar uh, and everything else. I think on solar, as you'll hear, that uh, the, the name of the game is to drive down the cost to make it competitive. And the wind industry today is certainly not the wind industry of the 1980s. It's not the wind industry of those wind turbines you see, uh, those of you who drive to Palm Springs as you pass through Cabazon. It's a very different, uh, much more sophisticated industry. Uh, and it, it does have scale, but it's still a small part of the overall picture. I think, you know, in terms of surprises, I still think that we may be surprised on biofuels. It doesn't have the attention that the electric car does today. But, uh, again, as I think you'll hear, people have continued to work on it, and there's a lot of uh, uh, intellectual horsepower and scientific talent that's working on it. Uh, Dan, part of the, uh, the prize and, and, and the quest lays down a lot of questions about energy realities and transitions, but then you get into the geostrategic consequences of these questions. You look at the question of where the United States will be, where other large stakeholders in the international system are, and the kinds of bets that they're making. Uh, you're on the board of the New America Foundation, where I'm a senior fellow and help put the place together. And we did a, a research report that looked at uh, the, the amount of dollars that were going into R&D in many of these green technologies and saw that they were immediately being siphoned out to China, Germany, Scandinavia, uh, that have such large leads over the United States uh, in these areas. And so is it, I guess my question in part is, while I think you advocate these innovation transitions, uh, China, 
three and a half years ago had 5% of the solar panel production capacity in the world, today has 70% of the solar panel production capacity in the world. Is it too late for the United States? Uh, and we're going to have somebody from the Department of Energy tell me no later, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, uh, I don't, uh, let me say two things. First, I, yeah. I don't buy into the argument that somehow we're losing the green technology race uh, to the Chinese. Obviously, the Chinese are putting an emphasis on these new technology. When I was in Beijing, I talked to uh, the, one of the senior people there, and he said these fierce winds in the northwest of the country said we used to regard them as a natural disaster. Now we regard them as a precious resource. <laughs> and I think that the Chinese... Uh, you know, have an advantage in manufacturing, and that's what you're seeing in, in solar cells. But I think in terms of the engine of innovation, the engine of creativity, I think the United States is still the leader, although I think innovation, and that's a good thing, is now a global phenomenon, not just a U.S. phenomenon, because we have big challenges to face. So I, I don't think we should uh, underestimate where we are. And I think keep in mind that, you know, some people suggest that the Chinese have now sort of embraced renewables and that's all they're doing. I'll tell you, they're stepping up coal, they're stepping up oil, they're stepping up natural gas. They're doing everything because they're trying to cope uh, with an, an economy that desperately needs energy to support the economic growth they need to absorb 20 million people moving from the countryside uh, to the city every year. But I'll tell you, you mentioned that on the geopolitical side, uh, we do need uh, higher, consistent levels of research and development spending in the country. This kind of up and down uh, where people can't plan their projects or can't plan their careers is not good for innovation. And uh, we would be still talking about a, a small sum of money, but that would truly be an investment in our future. Uh, the other thing is that, uh, that hasn't been noticed very much is that I find people still think we import most of our oil from the Middle East. Actually, Canada is our number one source of oil. And what's also interesting is to see actually U.S. oil production is going up, not down. It's up 10% since 2008 because of new technologies. And so the new technologies and this great bubbling of innovation is occurring, not, is occurring in renewables and alternatives. It's also occurring in conventional energies. I think just as a last question, Dan, as we uh, move into the panel, I know you've got to rush off to Boulder. Uh, you've mentioned the government basically stabilizing and looking at R&D platforms more seriously, but um, one of the things that's striking about this conference, and you meet these USC, UCSD engineers and innovators and entrepreneurs that are in this audience, and you recognize how unentrepreneurial, if that's a word, uh, we in Washington are, that we typically constrain, level, topple governments, do those kinds of things. But real changing the world is happening out here. But I'd be interested, since you straddle these communities, what do you think the two or three most important things government, our government, should be more um, uh, prone to do than it's been doing in, the, in the, uh, both the energy uh, policy area and, and the new technology area? Well, I think it goes back to what we were saying before about the application of uh, the technologies and the R&D. Uh, I think there's a general um, issue that... Uh, making sure that we support an entrepreneurial economy and don't uh, handcuff uh, our economy by kind of overly containing it with regulations and controls. But I think what you have uh, pointed to, and, and so that we have a, a business environment, a national ecosystem that supports innovation, new technologies. But I think what you just pointed to with your audience there or part of the audience, that's part of the great strength of America. Uh, is that kind of combination of yoking of scientific uh, 
talent, creativity, application to an innovative culture, a culture that uh, encourages people to take chances. And if you fail, it's not a disaster. Your, your life isn't over. And uh, that kind of spirit is there. And I think in the last, it's only, I mean, there are some people who have been in the energy field for a very long time. But I think in the last four or five years, we've seen this uh, just grow so uh, Significantly, I'm on the uh, advisory board at MIT, and about six years ago, they had nobody in their energy club. Now there's several thousand people in the energy club. So if we maintain that kind of a commitment, enthusiasm, and intellectual uh, hard work, I think that's where we'll see surprises, and that could change uh, what is now our expectations for what the energy future is going to look like. Ladies and gentlemen, let's extend our thanks to Dan Jurgen for joining us. Thank you so much, Dan. Let me call to the stage now uh, Stephen Mayfield, Steve Coonan, uh, Dan Kamen uh, to join us right up here, and we will carry this on. We have Steve Mayfield just to my right, who's director of the San Diego Center for Algae Biotechnology. Far more important is he just last month won the UC San Diego surfing uh, competition right on this beach. Um, Uh, we have Steve Coonan, who's uh, the Undersecretary of Energy for Science uh, at the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, found out that although this is no disrespect to all of us, he'd much rather be playing uh, jazz organ or piano in a lounge. Maybe that can be arranged <laughs> later tonight uh, at the lodge. Uh, and then we have Dan Kamen, who's the Chief Technical Specialist for Renewable Energy and Energy Efficiency at the World Bank. He's just gone back to UC Berkeley. The, sorry if this is wrong, but he is... Uh, uh, essentially holds uh, John Holdren's former seat at UC Berkeley uh, there as the 1935, that was interesting, the 1935 class uh, professor uh, there, which was interesting. We talked about it, but also um, just returned from Sudan, uh, South Sudan, where he's been in nation building uh, and building the clean energy network and, and, and on the front of that. But he also used to wire Grateful Dead concerts. So uh, we have a very, very cool crowd with us. Um, <laughs> But that said, we've just, you know, guys, we've just heard um, Dan Jurgen. I don't know if any of you have had a chance to take a look at the quest, which I'd highly recommend. Um, but as you sort of think through this question, um, you know, and I often approach these questions from a policy perspective of how do you get the public goods part of this question right, that you've got, uh, and, and, and why do we want to get it right? We have oil and energy. It kind of works. Dan Jurgen uh, is not really of the belief that, that we need to, that the constraints are, are less there, that technology will take us a long way. Um, why rush? Why the, is, is, is the renewable question more fad than real? And I'm going to start with uh, Steve Coonan. So I, I think you want to clearly understand what problems it is you're trying to solve. And we went through this exercise just released two or three weeks ago with John Holdren and the secretary and myself, this quadrennial technology review which tried to answer what does the Department of Energy do in energy and what are we trying to solve. It's up on the web. I would commend you uh, to have uh, a look at it. But, but briefly, look, there's the oil problem, the oil security problem, balance of payments problem, jobs problem, greenhouse gas problem. That's one whole separate discussion. There is the competitiveness discussion, which Dan touched on. And then there's the environmental discussion and different Technologies, different policies can address different of those in differing proportions. So I think the first thing is to get straight, what are we trying to solve and why? How do you see this from an algae, you're in the algae biotechnology field, 
and what Steve just laid out, laying out the question of what problems you're trying to solve. What problems are you trying to solve and are you solving them? So uh, let, let me put an optimistic spin, I think, to start this. And that's it. As a biologist, I've looked at the explosion in biological sciences over the last 20 years. You know, when I started in the business, you know, there was this dream that we were going to sequence the human genome. And as a graduate student, you know, this started to get pitched in the late 80s. And many of us thought, oh, that's the moon project. That's going to be, you know, 30 years away. And today, any one of us could have our genome sequenced now for less than $1,000. So that exponential explosion in scientific discovery, especially in the biological side of things, I think is really, when I look at it, and what we've achieved just in the last three or four years on on the algae front, and I look at that and I say, the biology is not hard. We are going to solve that. And by that, what I mean is we will have designed-for-purpose organisms that can convert solar energy into a fungible form of chemical energy, a liquid fuel. We have those today, and we will continue to make improvements on the biology, I'm very optimistic that that is either a done deal or will soon be a done deal. The tougher question is, how does that fit into this enormous infrastructure of energy in this country, and and at what point does it become economically viable and economically competitive with existing, you know, hydrocarbon? And so I think that question is very much open, and I think what uh, Steve's job over the next couple of years is to do is to make sure that the funding stays there to allow us to achieve that economic parity. We'll do the biology, and then the engineering will come along later. So the technologies are there to solve this. It's a matter of timing and execution and dollars. Can you imagine, I mean, let me just take this one step further and then go to Dan. When I, when I think about it, and, and, and spending some time, I hate to call them oil companies, but energy companies, because as, as Don mentioned, you've got solar panels, and you kind of, you know, deal the broad profile, but the big bulk of it is in fossil fuels or natural gas and, and, and oil. Um, but at some point, you get a tipping point where those big energy providers become the energy owners. And I sometimes think of other ecosystems, like blogging. I, I started a blog a long time ago, and if you think about all the kind of cool blogs that are out there, most of the best ones have been bought by Time Magazine and New York Times and The Atlantic and, and others, and you end up getting these, that, 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 that those sectors that started, so your solar, your algae, your um, wind power companies essentially are the Chevrons and the Shells and the BPs of the future. Is that, is that where you see things going? Well, certainly it's going to take an enormous economic investment to see any one of these things through. And if you look at the groups with the deepest pockets and the biggest resources right now, those are the energy companies, you know, whether it's Chevron or Exxon or British Petroleum. So I think naturally when you think about how big the investment has to be, you have to think who can afford that. And, and those groups that have the deep pockets and can make the investment, I think, will end up with it. So, yeah, not, not in a negative way, but I think, yes, yeah, we'll make the innovation here. We'll prove it at small scale and then companies with a lot more resources than we have will step up and, and make that commercial. Let me just emphasize yeah. this distinction between innovation and material impact. Deployment depends on economics, business, regulation. And you can innovate like crazy, and we hope that everybody does, and we'll try to make that happen. But you will not have any material impact unless somebody can make money doing it. Interesting. Dan? So, I mean, I guess... We've, we've heard what I would say is the right initial conditions, that we have an energy system today, there's a lot of money in it, that means there's a lot of momentum and inertia, both politically and technologically, 
But we have a whole set of reasons, and Steve highlighted a couple of them, why we need to make a transition. We use the energy we use today incredibly inefficiently. We waste by combusting things we could use in better forms. We don't emphasize energy efficiency. There's a whole range of things that we do wrong, and those are all reasons to usher in this new energy economy. And for me, it has to be low carbon. It's got to be much more personally accessible and useful. There's a whole bunch of reasons why we need to make that transition, climate change being one of them, but not the only one. But I think the problem here, and it was highlighted a little bit by the story that I, I agree with Dan Jurgen, which I don't always do, um, and that is that we don't have a peak oil problem. We have lots and lots of oil out there, and it gets increasingly dirty as we look at the bottom of the barrel. The problem is our current system, both where a lot of the R&D money is going and the policies, don't push us towards a new clean one. So I'm finishing up an op-ed right now called, we don't need a Sputnik moment, we need a Star Trek moment. We need to deploy and use these things, because if we don't build the market side of the equation, all of the neat research in my lab and other labs isn't going to get us where we need to go. And I think the real worry is that this discussion and argument about what China's doing is really unfortunate because it gets away from the feature that we need all of these innovators. We need these new science areas. We need new markets. China's about to become the largest market in the world where they're actually putting a price on carbon. When four provinces in China launch their cap-and-trade system, they will become the largest set of people, larger than Europe, larger than what California's doing, larger than what's happening in the Northeast and the U.S., where they're actually working under a system that values that future we're talking about. And eventually, we're going to have to figure out a way to put our values into our financial system. And that means cleaner energy, more access to energy, and those are the parts of the story that we have to hold together. So it's not just innovation and science. It's also what we call the market pull. Technology push, market pull. We have to bias that in this green direction, and much more rapidly than we're doing today. I mean, it, it, uh, with all due respect, isn't that a bit pie in the sky in the sense that as you look at Congress, you look how it's designed, that that sort of world that you would like to see happen probably isn't going to happen. So if, if, if that isn't, and I'll contrast that with Japan. I just got back from Japan, and there's a term in Japan called setsuden, which means essentially conserve electricity. It's remarkable. Japan has cut down its gross national energy consumption by 15% in almost no time. And there's like this setsuden mania uh, out there uh, in terms of, you know, people are shamed if they take an elevator or, or uh, you know, lights. And, and, and it's a fascinating kind of group culture that has completely embraced this notion of conservation. I can't imagine that happening in this country without a major price hike. So I really disagree. I mean, after the California energy crisis in uh, 10 years ago, electricity use was cut by 10% by an ad campaign, not by all the fancy stuff that came later. And the reason why I don't think it's pie in the sky is because the, the world we're evolving into, China doing a cap-and-trade experiment, California and Western states launching their version, Europe under their own version, and the Northeast, that's basically a billion people under a light initial trial version of the energy economy that we need to go to in terms of the market conditions, not in terms of the whole process from R&D into market. And I think that the real key feature here that we're, we're not putting front and center is that the new energy economy has to provide products that you want to buy. You know, the iPod and other devices didn't take over because someone told them from Washington. It was fundamentally a better product. Well, having your home make money, having your small business make money on selling power back to the grid, that requires a smart grid. That requires the kind of network thinking 
system solution that we need to do more of. And it's actually one of the areas where the U.S. has a competitive advantage. And we're not taking advantage fully of those efforts. That's why I would say it's not something that just because U.S. Congress is bottled up on this right now doesn't mean it's not a better energy system. And when you look around the world, China, Brazil, Mexico are all places that are pushing more rapidly ahead of us. So carbon pricing is one of the things. It's a new currency we need. But we have second-best measures that most of the world has embraced. Right now, it's got a nerdy name. It's the feed-in tariff. It's giving a, a bump in price for cleaner energy to get the markets rolling. It's worked wonderfully in a number of countries. There are a couple places where it was done too exuberantly. But it's a natural intermediate step. And it's the kind of thing that makes the world I'm talking about nowhere near as far off as you know, the squabbles on Capitol Hill today or tomorrow. Steve? So I, I want to come back again to the problem we're trying to solve and try to clarify this discussion a little bit. Look, there is the stationary sector, which is about electricity, buildings, and heat. And then there's the transportation sector. And they are currently entirely separate things because we don't run very many cars on electricity right now. And so, you know, clean electricity is not going to solve the oil problem. And conversely, solving the oil problem is not the same as, as some of these efficiency things Dan has been talking about. It's point one. Second point, we heard the phrases energy independence this morning. It's common currency in the political discussion. Let me just tell one anecdote. If you go back to the United Kingdom in the year 2000, there were fuel riots the truckers were protesting, consumers were protesting, because the price of diesel and petrol were driven up by a rise in the world oil price at that time. Nevertheless, in the year 2000, the UK was more than energy independent. It was exporting a million and a half barrels a day from the North Sea. So we can be energy independent, but we will still be vulnerable to the global oil market. So you, do you, when you're in these policy meetings and, and people are talking about energy independence, do you try to, to move? I mean, I find it sort of a red herring uh, myself, but how do you, so how do you treat it in the policy discussion? So what I say is we need to go to price independence, not energy independence. And by the way, that means we're not going to fix it with biofuels either because the biofuels, we hope, will be fungible with the oil. If it's fungible with the oil, it costs you less to produce. You would be a fool not to sell it at the oil price. And conversely, if it costs you more than the oil, somebody's going to have to buy you down to make you economically viable. So I'm trying to, I keep saying these things, sometimes I'm like the skunk at the garden party, but hell, I'm just the science guy, right? I get right? that sense. Okay. You, you enjoy that. And, uh, well, uh, Stephen? Well, well, one of the comments that I'd like to bring up is, I think one of our challenges is that we actually don't have new products that we're delivering. So when an iPhone comes out, we can all look at that as consumers and say, oh, that's really different, that's great, I want to have one of these. But the products we make are going to be electricity and diesel and gas. These things are not going to change. What is changing is the way we're going to produce those. And as a consumer, if I pull up to a gas station, I don't think, how did they produce that oil? Did that come from Canadian tar sands or did that come from West Texas light? Because there's an enormous difference on the impact of the environment at how that was produced. But for me as a consumer, I look at that and say, that one's cheaper, that's what I'm going to buy. So I think the challenge we have, and this is a leadership challenge, is how do we factor in those economic externalities on the production side of things and make those visible to the consumer? I think if we had a way to do that, then we would get so, consumer so acceptance. So that commodity nature of fuel molecules and, electri and electrons 
also plays on the production side. If I'm a producer, I have many variables I can pull to make a profit. How I operate the plants, market conditions, long-term contracts. Technology is often the most risky and least central thing I will turn to. And so you see a risk aversion and a very slow introduction of new technology in both fuels and power. But look, what this really, though, is about is that a currency we have today does not reflect our social values. First of all, energy prices for most people, not for the poor, are too low. That the social value of those energy services are much higher than we charge for a whole variety of reasons. And the other one is that we haven't built in a system because it's hard to reflect that full value. Now, there's a field that's evolved over the last decade and a half called life cycle or cradle-to-grave analysis. It is one tool. As someone who does life cycle analysis of biofuels and fossil fuels and the energy and the materials to make solar panels, I can tell you all of the hard aspects of doing it and getting the system boundary right and do you count the energy that went into the food for the farmer who might make the biofuel. It's not easy to do, but it's no more difficult than other things that we accept today, or 401c3, all kinds of other things that we, we deal with. And we need to, we need to evolve our system to Just to push back, though, to I mean, there. in this economy, it would be, again, to bring politics into it, it's very hard for me to imagine uh, anyone surviving uh, more than a couple of days with the notion of going to talk to the American middle class and say, you know, you're really not paying enough for your energy. Yeah, well, um, so, but I think that's not, that's not the point, because we see lots of cases where if you do this analysis, you find out that there are cheaper options. If you build half of your home, and then you say, oh, gosh, I want to make it LEED certified super platinum, that's the point that it's most expensive to make your home LEED platinum and to save money in the long-term costs. But if you do it up front and you plan, we see homes that are physically cheaper day one. I don't mean after 20 years of amortizing the costs. Cheaper day one than the dirtier alternative. And then you save on energy. We have companies like Solar City out there saying... Take your utility bill today, put solar panels on your roof, and your bill goes down not in three years' time, but it goes down today. And by not having the systems that incentivize these types of operations, we not only shoot ourselves in the foot on a climate basis, but we give away companies, you know, some of the biggest wind companies in the world, not based in the U.S., are using technology developed at U.S. universities and national labs that those companies couldn't find a foothold because the policy environment here was, wasn't right. So sending the signals to allow us to value better, cheaper energy so that you know, when I design my next home, I design it so that on my smartphone, I sell power back at 4 p.m. when the price of electricity is five or 10 times what it is at four in the morning, when my solar panels aren't producing. That's the kind of opportunity that we are giving away by not thinking more in a systems way. And you'll have Amory Lovins on in a few minutes. Amory is the master of saying, it's the system, stupid. You don't take this all into account, you won't find these savings. Well, we're finding a way to make it hard to find those savings. And that's the right now, that's the big failure of, of American politics. Not that we're arguing over which fuels, it's that we're not enabling a system to both provide innovation and to let these clean technologies have an advantage. That's folks, what a feed-in tariff do you, does. Do you folks think sometimes we focus on the wrong things? Again, you know, come back to Steve's moment about you know, focusing on the problem you're trying to fix. And if you're going to think about a renewable um, energy transition that's realistic, that I, I think, again, I, I come from the school of thought that doesn't believe there are quick 
easy solutions and you look at the kind of broad uh, footprint of 17 or 18 different energy options. When I had the CEO of SolarCity on a panel recently, not uh, Elon, who's the chairman, I just learned, but the, the, the president of the firm, he said their biggest problem, he was public, he really lambasted California uh, county regulators and said, if you look at county versus county, the regulatory world that you sit in inhibits innovation. You can, you can demonize certain parts of this, but it doesn't help you. Fundamentally, the regulatory process, the permitting process, and so we'd come up, this is a new idea for me, he said, why don't we publish something about the regulatory delays, which counties are best, which are worst, and let's make that uh, a, a public item that would then put pressure um, on, on the thing. So the question is, are we do we sometimes spend too much time? We have, a, we have a federal guy here. I don't mean to, to debase you, uh, Steve. But, uh, I am the government. I work but, for you all. But, but, the, but the question is, do we often look for these kind of silver bullet, large-scale federal solutions right. when there's a lot that can be done locally and in other other arenas. So, so um, several comments on that. First of all, I, you know, I grew up as a scientist. I'm a technologist. What I've come to realize is most of the barriers here are social, regulatory, economic, not so much about the technology, though, because we always want to keep pushing the technology. The second is one of the downsides of the way the U.S. does things versus some of our competitors is this wonderful federal system. There are 5,000 different entities that touch the electrical grid in this country. They all have different motivations, different jurisdictions. Getting that sorted out will get us a long way to the problem. Um, there was a third point that I can't remember what it was right now. but Oh, I remember. You know, let's focus on what the problem is. One of the characteristics of energy is that people are technological partisans. I've got the answer, right? It's solar panels, or it's biofuels, or it's small modular reactors, and so on. And I come back again to what problem are we trying to solve? If it's the greenhouse gas problem, let us focus on reducing greenhouse gases. That means renewables, sure, but also carbon capture and storage, modern nuclear I mean, you have to let those in the tent if you're going to have an effective solution to the problem as opposed to just doing ideological technology development. Unfair quick question. Do you believe the Obama administration has that, that fixed? Does it know what problem it's trying to fix? Uh, I believe that uh, it's a hard. Kuwait, the administration is not monolithic, famously, right? Uh, okay. I think that the uh, more informed parts of the administration understand exactly what the problems Stephen? are. Stephen? I, listen, I, I think one of the biggest problems we have is that we love to change the discussion halfway through the debate. Um, as soon as something gets tough... It's our job, you know. Yes, I know. And, uh, <laughs> um, but as soon as the debate gets tough and as soon as somebody really has to put their foot down and say, this is, this is the decision I'm going to make, there is somebody that that decision, they're not going to like that decision. Right. And those people are going to yell and scream. And we always get to that point and then we back off. And I think this is really a failure of leadership. And I certainly don't say that about the Obama administration. I say that collectively, all of us, right? That we haven't been willing to make tough decisions, right? Right now, I heard, or I heard somebody say earlier that, that our number one import is from Canada. It's true. It's the tar sands. And if we were to go look at the tar sands and the environmental consequences that those are having in North Canada, we would shut those down instantly, all right? But look, it's, it's, in a, it's, in a, it's in a place where we don't see it. it it's, um, it's invisible to most of us, so we let that go. Um, the other debate that I always hear going on, and maybe as part of this discussion, is, oh, regulations are the problem. Regulations are not the problem. 
we can all agree that we want to regulate things. That's what laws are. That's what the Ten Commandments are. Those are all regulations, okay? We can all agree with those. It's uneven application of them or capricious, you know, regulations that sort of come up by one individual decides this is something good to do. So it's sort of getting the, the playing field even, all of us collectively agreeing that these are regulations we can live with. One of them, I think, should be carbon reduction, cap and trade of some sort, and then applying those evenly to everybody. And you know, I, I think that's probably the biggest challenge that, that any administration, and certainly this one, is going to have when there's a lot of different voices arguing for their you know, selective piece of the pie. I mean, I, th- I, I want to come to Dan and then open up to the audience, but, but just, Dan, before we get into this, I recently had an event with the staff directors, the Republican staff director and Democratic staff director of the Senate Energy Committee. So they work for Jeff Bingham and Elisa Murkowski. And uh, it was an off-the-record session, but I can talk about it. So um, <laughs> it means you can say it happened. Yeah. You can follow and the I can talk about off, the general guess, yeah. outlines. But, but it was really interesting that you had um, Mackay Campbell and Bob Simon essentially both outline where there was enormous convergence of interest and perspective from Murkowski and Bingaman, and, the more, and, and more broadly, other members of the Energy Committee in moving forward. And they outlined five different bills in different areas. And when you listen to them, you said, wow, what universe are you guys on? You're cooperating, you're getting along. Uh, there are areas of interest. It's not a zero-sum game, no silver bullets. It sort of seemed healthy that you were looking at the broad energy profile. And it's a picture that American public's not getting. And, and they also then said there's no chance that our anything that we do can move forward in the institution in which they work. And so, Dan, you, you sort of straddle words. You're just at the World Bank. You're at Berkeley, but you know everybody in government. I, I, I look at this and I, I, I you know, think that we've got a paralysis problem despite the vision problem, and I'm, I'm interested in your perspective. Well, look, I mean, you, you just cited two incredibly gifted staffers. I mean, those are real experts, and they know how to work together, and I think there is a lot more of that than we see publicly. But what Steve highlighted, I think, is, is, is the common barrier to this process, and that is, what is it you want to do? Some people want to solve global warming. Some people want to do competitiveness. There's, there's all these different features. But what both those staffers and the senators will say privately is that we're shooting ourselves in the foot in terms of not allowing the system to evolve. And there's some really important examples. Go go back to your different municipal um, distinctions feature. Chancellor Merkel in Germany loves to give this talk where she says, here is the regulations that you have to get through as a small business or a homeowner in the U.S. to install solar or to have a battery charging station. And it's a big stack of paper. Then she brings one sheet and says, this is the form you have to fill out if you want to do the same thing in Germany. Your excess regulation means that what costs 10 cents on the dollar in Germany costs a dollar on the dollar. So you've just made that clean energy evasion, whether it's efficiency or fuel cells or combined, you've made it 10 times expensive. No wonder you can't compete. It's not China you're losing out to. It's your own bureaucracy. That's the failure. We have another example, though. If you want to solve the problem of getting these technologies in the market, you've got to make capital available to them. Stimulus money was a shot of money. There's lots to talk about in terms of the ramp up and the ramp down and things. But we haven't got the big banks, the pension funds, the big money out there into the game. There's an innovation, and I'm biased towards it because we started in Berkeley, and it's called PACE. So it's Property Assessed Clean Energy allow you to borrow money from some entity, whether it's local or federal, install efficiency first, 
and then clean energy, and then pay it back effectively on your taxes with an extra mortgage. That's something that started in California. 22 states passed it in the matter of a year. It went to the federal government, the Treasury, and it stopped. And there was a worry that making more loan money available with so many homeowners underwater would be disaster. No one looked at the data that shows if you are someone who invests in your property or your home to make it greener, you're a better credit risk than the average, not a worse credit risk. That's an example of one of these barriers, and that's why the smart policymakers on all sides of the aisle see the same thing. It is our own processes getting in the way of that innovation, Steve, not I'll China. You, I'll give you two finger if you, if you tell me if you had anything to do with Solyndra. Obligated. So, so Solyndra happened in March of 2009. I joined the department in May of 2009. Uh, Appears to uh, be clean. Good answer. uh, uh, Look, no, I want to... Don't you think we're making too much of the Solyndra deal? Um, Look, um, Solyndra. First of all, again, simple principles guy. Congress in 2005 passes a law that says the government should do loan guarantees and take greater risk than the private sector, Okay. So risk to me means sometimes it doesn't work out as well as you would like. Secondly, on Solyndra, there was a lot of private money in that deal. There was over a billion dollars of private investment, quite independent of the 500 and some odd million that the department did as a loan guarantee. That same program supports some tens, whether it's 20 or 30, I don't remember, of other projects, most of which are doing just fine. All right? So, yeah. Okay. But, but, so, so your me, point. So now I get my point. Um, Fair trade. Um, I want to follow up on Dan's uh, point that the enemy is us in some ways. I I like to contrast energy with national security, which is an acknowledged very important government function for the last 200 and some odd years. We have its own department. We have enduring federal employees whose job it is to buffer defense from the political winds. And we have answered that mail pretty well. Contrast that with energy. First of all, you don't reach a career employee until you drill down to the deputy assistant secretary in fossil or nuclear or renewables or whatever. And so the coordination, synergy, balancing is very difficult. And then at a larger level, energy is so ubiquitous and important that energy responsibilities are diffused throughout the federal government. Department of Transportation, EPA, Department of Energy, Ag, Interior, you can go on and on. And any of you who have any experience with large organizations know it's really difficult to get coordination across that spectrum, particularly when the leadership changes every four years. Okay? So that's another, I think, structural reason why we haven't moved rapidly in energy. Interesting thing. Let me open to the, to the floor and to the balcony. Um, yes, right here. And if we, do we have microphones? We've got a lot of folks watching streaming, so we'll need to make sure we get mics to folks. Yes, sir. If you'll identify yourself, please. Just a theoretical question. Um, what would happen if we discovered fusion or some other free energy in our lifetime in the economy and the society? And is that the reason why it won't happen? Yeah. So, so first of all, I mean, discovering fusion, uh, we already know fusion exists. We use it. Uh, in ways, the sun uses it, as Dan says, right. uh, you know, nuclear weapons, et cetera, et cetera. We are trying to make, conf- uh, to make fusion 
practical in the sense of being able to extract energy reliably, and most important, economically. But the bigger issue he's getting at, which Dan Jurgen also gets at in his book, are disruptive technologies or the Google of energy, something that we're not seeing. Do you think the field is so well known that that's unrealistic? I, I think on the supply side, that's, it's going to take a long time. On the demand side, in terms of more efficient technologies, that I could imagine turning over much more rapidly. But we understand the laws of physics pretty well. And so the energy technologies, in my view, largely on the supply side, pretty well understood field. Yeah, but, but let's be clear. I mean, there's a famous quote from, from the Eisenhower era, and it said, well, we'll make energy too cheap to meter. And the technology of the day was nuclear. Well, the thing is that the only footprint in our lives of energy is not just the cost. It's land area. It's water. It's biodiversity. It's poor indigenous communities being flooded out, whether it's by a dam or by a solar field. All of these are the footprints. And unless we start to get those things in our calculus, it doesn't matter if the energy is free. The footprint's big, and we need to understand that. You know, we are talking about a human population and rapidly re- uh, de- uh, increasing demands for energy. We have to put all that on the table. That's where life cycle or whatever full costing has to be part of the equation. Stephen, I'm surprised you didn't jump out and said that algae is the new disruptive technology. It's not. Um, you know, I, I like your realism. Listen, it, it's not. Uh, you know, fa- famously quoted, you know, there's no silver bullet. There may be silver buckshot. And it's one of many options that should be on the table. And uh, it's certainly one that I work very hard and I hope is going to be successful. And I hope all these other ones are. The question I'm often asked is, is that the disruptive technology? There is no disruptive technology in energy. There never has been and there never will be. All of these things have to win and have to win big. Right back here. Well, let's make it a question, too, real, real tight. And... Uh, <laughs> Dan, you made it clear that we're making it harder on ourselves uh, to, to help ourselves. I'm wondering if any of you have ideas for those of us in this room uh, outside of voting for the right policies for how we can make it easier to help ourselves. So how do we get out of our own way? Well, I mean, I think that one of them is that we need to understand really what was just said right here by Steve, that how critical energy is and that it is a place where there's incredible innovation going on on the science side. We have lots of undeployed, interesting policies out there that we could, we could work on. So it is a place for smart innovators, whether they're in academia or in industry or in government, to really make a name and a career for themselves. And the U.S. has the biggest backlog of undeployed smart policies and technologies. If we got on with doing those, entrepreneur by entrepreneur, whether they're you know, university, private sector, or government, that's the real advantage. And that's where this green job boom is going to come from. That's what I would say is the place to, you know, to build on our resource. Any last comments? So, so I, I, I have a slightly different take on it. And as former university professor talking, you know, it's understanding... This is not rocket science. You can, in 20 minutes, pretty well understand the problems, what the solutions can be, and so on. And I think getting that understanding, spreading it through society, and then using it as you vote, as you help formulate local regulations, what makes sense, what doesn't, that's how you all can help. Stephen? Yeah, I'd say that we slept through the last 50 years on energy and uh, that we don't actually have to do anything uh, proactive as individuals over the next 10 years, it's going to be done for us by the rest of the world. Uh, competition for energy, uh, we, have, we hit 7 billion people on the planet this week or next. Uh, those numbers alone are going to bring this front and center. Well, I want to thank all of you for joining the Three Steves and Dan show. Uh,
Hello, everyone. Welcome back from lunch. Uh, my name is Alexis Madrigal. I'm a senior editor with The Atlantic. Uh, I cover technology and energy. Um, and I wrote a book called Powering the Dream, um, which was about the history of green technology. So it's from that position that I tell you we are in the presence of a legend. Um, this is Amory Lovins sitting to my left. Um, and he first uh, burst onto the national scene in the 1970s um, when he basically close to single-handedly, along with a few other physicists, turned the energy conversation in the United States upside down. Um, many of the trends that people in the utility industry, uh, people in the fossil fuel industry, people building nuclear plants, um, had thought were ironclad uh, in the 20th century, reversed themselves or uh, changed markedly in the 1970s, and really left the country looking for leadership on energy. And if it weren't for people like Amory, uh, or like Art Rosenberg and a few others. Um, it's hard to know uh, what this country uh, would have done. Um, his first book, uh, Soft Energy, well, uh, not first book, not first work, but his groundbreaking book, uh, Soft Energy Paths, is just a, a must-read for people interested in understanding uh, what was going on during that time. Um, and really, understanding that we actually had great successes in energy efficiency uh, in this country uh, over time. We have him here today talking about his latest book, Reinventing Fire. Um, it's really an attempt uh, to create a blueprint for every sector uh, of the United States and how we can transform the energy system completely away from fossil fuels uh, and, and grow the economy on top of it um, by 2050. Um, the conceit uh, is that we've built our civilization on fire, on combustion, on taking fuel and burning it uh, directly for heat and light, uh, but also to create steam to drive our power plants, uh, to drive pistons, to drive our cars. Um, and the time has come now to, to move away from combustion, to move away from burning things, to, to have a civilization. Uh, for a variety of reasons, lots and lots of people think our energy system is in for a big change. Um, Amory is one of them, and I'd like him to tell us basically, you know, there are a lot of energy books. Why is reinventing fire different? It's a business book in which we took seriously advice attributed to General Eisenhower, although it's not clear whether he said it, that if a problem cannot be solved, enlarge it. In other words, rather than shrinking it to try to make it more tractable, you expand the system boundary to bring in more options, more degrees of freedom, more synergies until it becomes soluble. So we integrated all four sectors that use energy, in which we've worked deeply for 30-odd years, namely transportation, buildings, industry, and electricity. And we also integrated four different kinds of innovation, not just technology and policy, but also design, which is how you combine technology, and uh, new business strategies, business models, competitive strategies, which turn out to be even riper in innovation than technology and policy. And the four together are much more than the sum of the parts, especially in producing some deeply disruptive business opportunities. What we attempted here, the most ambitious thing we've ever tried, and RMI isn't noted for lacking ambition. RMI just being Rocky Mountain Institute, which is what I should have said, which is Amory's official oh, sorry. Uh, organization. Uh, what we attempted here also is trans-ideological, 
that is, whether you most care about uh, profits, jobs, competitive advantage, or about national security, or about environmental stewardship and health, it doesn't matter. The same things <clears throat> ought to be done anyhow for whatever reason, so let's stop arguing about why and focus on outcomes, not motives. And then if we do the stuff that uh, people agree about for whatever reason, then the, the stuff we don't agree about tends to become superfluous. So it's, it's not just nonpartisan, it's, it's way outside the sphere of, of partisan debate. So, so let's start. You, you broke the book up into transportation, building, uh, buildings, industry, and electricity. I mean, let's start at, at transportation. That's how the book starts. Actually, let's start one, one step earlier, Alex, on how they're related. Steve Coonan made the important point that, that there are two big stories here, oil and electricity. And they're separate because less than 1% of our oil, but 95% of our coal makes electricity. But uh, power plants and burning oil each emit two-fifths of the fossil carbon in the country and the world. And where does the stuff go? Well, three-quarters of the electricity goes to buildings, three-quarters of the oil goes to transportation, the rest of both goes to factories. So very efficient transport buildings and factories save a lot of oil and coal and save a lot of natural gas that can be used to displace both of them. But I think you're right to start with oil <clears throat> because directly and indirectly uh, it's costing upwards of a sixth of GDP, not just the $2 billion a day we pay to buy the stuff, but another $4 billion a day in the macroeconomic costs of oil dependence, the microeconomic costs of price volatility, and the military costs of forces earmarked for Persian Gulf intervention, those are each half a trillion dollars a year. Uh, the last of those being 10 times what we pay for oil from the Persian Gulf, or actually uh, rivaling our total defense expenditure at the height of the Cold War. Now, our analysis <clears throat> doesn't count any of those externalities, or any externalities. We assume they're all worth zero, a conservatively low estimate. Uh, <clears throat> but we still find that we can run a 2.6 times bigger economy in 2050 with no oil, no coal, no nuclear energy, a third less natural gas, <clears throat> at a $5 trillion lower cost in net present value than business as usual. The transition requiring no new inventions and no acts of Congress and led by business for profit. And it's in oil that actually this is most visible because there's a $4 trillion net present value saving there uh, <clears throat> driven by new competitive strategies, particularly for cars or autos, which uh, use three-fifths of our mobility fuel. I want to just point out briefly something that I love about the way that Amory thinks and that I think it's, it's worth drawing attention to. You know, in his previous work, as well as the, the more recent stuff, you know, sort of projecting out what the business-as-usual case would cost oftentimes is surprising to people. We end up sort of comparing the cost of change to nothing, as opposed to the cost of change to the cost of doing business as usual. And a lot of the stats uh, that Amory was just talking about um, sort of point out the cost of the, the various types of energy. So let's go yeah. a, a little bit deeper. Like, can we, okay. Like, so what, what, what's the type of change that you foresee uh, in transportation to stay, stay well, let's start. Let's start with the autos because they're the biggest nut to crack. Uh, Two-thirds of what it takes to move an auto is caused by its weight. And every unit of 
energy we can save at the wheels by taking obesity out of the car. They'd be gaining, <laughs> they'd be gaining weight twice as fast as we have. Uh, <clears throat> every unit you save at the wheels saves seven units at the tank because you don't need to waste six getting that energy to the wheels. So there's huge leverage in taking out weight and drag. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> we found that there is indeed now a very strong business case that's been adopted by three German automakers that are coming out with uh, carbon fiber electrified cars in mass production in the next two years uh, for uh, taking out <clears throat> so much weight and drag that you can afford to electrify the car because instead of waiting around for cheaper batteries, you need fewer batteries. BMW, one of those, has confirmed that the fewer batteries pay for the carbon fiber that you need to take out the weight. Uh, so the competitive strategy here is to uh, engage three very steep, very synergistic learning curves. One in the uh, carbon fiber, the ultralight materials, another in how you make them into structures, and a third in the electric propulsion. I brought along my carbon cap. This is my only <laughs> prop today. <clears throat> this is a, a test piece for military helmets now shipping. And uh, you can tell from the sound that it is uh, extremely stiff and strong and tougher than titanium. Actually, it absorbs 12 times the crash energy of steel per pound. But uh, a part like this, this was actually made in less than a minute uh, seven years ago. And that sort of process for getting aerospace performance uh, can now clearly scale to automotive cost and speed. But the ultralighting turns out to be free. That's a surprise. Well, it's because you make the propulsion system two or three times smaller to get the same acceleration with less mass, and because the manufacturing gets radically simpler, up to 99% less tooling cost, no body shop, no paint shop, four-fifths less capital. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> if you made all of our U.S. autos out of this stuff, it would be like finding a Saudi Arabia under Detroit, a very prospective play down in the Detroit formation. Uh, <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and. Uh, this sort of innovation is also accelerated by the military interest mentioned in the previous panel in energy efficiency because they figured out the huge cost in blood and treasure to delivering the fuel to the battle space, which hadn't previously been counted when they designed the stuff that uses the fuel. But now that they're counting the fully burdened cost of delivering fuel to the platform in theater and wartime, that's driving uh, radical efficiency innovations, not just biofuels, which will then come back to the civilian sector in much the way that military R&D gave us the internet, the jet engine and microchip GPS. industries, the global positioning system, all the stuff that transformed the civilian economy. So that's a point I, I would add to Steve Coonan's correct comment that military fuel use is, is only a bit under 2% of national oil. But then again, you can leverage over 50 to 1 by bringing those technologies to the civilian sector. So I think when you put those three learning curves together in autos, it's just as game-changing, at least, as going from mechanical typewriters to Moore's Law-driven computers. Of course, our biggest industry now is computers and electronics. Typewriter makers have vanished. The CEO of BMW says, we do not intend to be a typewriter maker. And then you combine that with tripled efficiency, trucks and planes, and you can also accelerate the adoption of electric vehicles with a policy that can be implemented at state level called a fee bait, which means uh, fees on inefficient new cars 
paid for by or paying for rebates to efficient new cars. That broadens the price spread in each size class so that you'll, when you're going to buy an auto, you'll look at the full 15 years fuel savings, not just the first year or two. Uh, Europe now has five national fee-bait programs going, and the biggest one uh, has uh, tripled the speed of improving auto efficiency in the first two years. So then there's one other element to add to the mix, and that is uh, driving smarter. Uh, <clears throat> you know, if you think about the, the kind of load shape of morning and evening traffic congestion, uh, if that were an electricity load shape, we would throw a lot of IT and pricing and demand response and smart grid at it to flatten it. But by not doing that with road traffic, we are wasting many billions of dollars in idle people, roads, and vehicles. So now we have four proven... And traffic. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. We now have, have four proven ways to flatten that out. Uh, one is, is smarter uh, real estate models, smart growth, and new urbanism. So people are already pretty much where they want to be. And then you can charge for driving infrastructure by the mile, not the gallon. And you could use IT to smooth out traffic flow and enable car and ride sharing and transit. When you put all that together, you can actually get the same or better access with 46 to 84% less driving and a lot less hassle. What, do, what determines the 46 to 84? What, that's that's the, the range in the measured uh, data for how much you can save by combining those four things. And those save you another $0.4 trillion. Then there's another $0.3 trillion <clears throat> to be saved by using trucks smarter. Uh, actually, Walmart has cut its fuel use per ton mile in its giant truck fleet by 60% of the last five years, including some logistical improvement. And there's, there's still more to go there. Uh, <clears throat> so well, you add it all up, and, and you don't need any oil to run an economy with in this case, 56% more flying, 90% more driving, 118% more trucking, uh, because you're running the autos on any mixture of electricity, hydrogen fuel cells, uh, advanced biofuels, if you wish. The trucks and planes run on hydrogen or advanced biofuels. You can run trucks on natural gas if you want, but nobody needs oil. And, and the biofuel you need is only 3 million barrels a day. Our total oil use is now about 19 uh, and, uh, well, three you can make readily from algae, from cellulosic, but without needing any cropland and without hurting the soil or the climate. So, particularly, I mean, let's focus on light weighting of cars, like making cars radically lighter while, you know, giving them comparable or better safety characteristics. This is a concept that's made sense to you uh, specifically for at least 15, 20, 20 years. Yeah. Um, what's taken a while? I mean, are we, and, and how well, do we know and, we're at an inflection point now? <laughs> well, uh, at the Frankfurt Auto Show just held, the theme that everybody reported across the board was lightweighting. Uh, and uh, this is now viewed as the hottest strategic trend in the industry. The composites are just starting to take hold, first in Germany, but there's a lot behind the curtain in Japan, uh, and uh, a lot in this country. I, I was working with, with Ford earlier and very pleased with what's going on there. So watch this space. Uh, and what took so long is mainly cultural. Uh, Henry Ford understood about weight. He said it's only good in a steamroller and you, you don't need weight for strength. Uh, and you know anybody that watches uh, racing will know how extraordinarily durable those cars are. There's a reason that your crash helmet is probably made of carbon fiber, not steel. But 
designing with these materials is very different. You organize people in a different way. Burger Tan doesn't hire people from metal airplane companies because they have too much to unlearn. And in fairness, until a few years ago, we didn't have a, a validated manufacturing process, but now there are eight companies making this stuff. Right. I mean, I think one of the, the best ways of sort of describing uh, a lot of the kind of thinking that you've done um, is to say that we take, that, that sometimes making bigger changes is actually easier than making smaller changes. Absolutely. And so maybe you could give us uh, a couple of examples within the buildings and sort of industry sectors of sort of where going, going big actually ends up costing less for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, Empire State Building is, is an <clears throat> interesting example that we worked on with several partners, and the retrofit finished last year was saving over two-fifths of the energy with a three-year payback. Uh, which is a big surprise. Uh, how did we do that? Well, remanufacturing the 6,500 windows on site into super windows that are almost perfect in letting in light without heat, plus better lights and office equipment and so on, cut the peak cooling load by a third. So then, <clears throat> instead of having to close and dig up Fifth Avenue, dig out the old chillers and expand and replace them, we could renovate them in place and reduce them. and that saved over $17 million of capital cost, which helped pay for everything else, hence the three-year payback. We do the same trick in our house down to minus 47, growing bananas with no furnace, and it was cheaper to build that way. And we've done the same thing in, in houses up to 115F, getting rid of the air conditioning with better comfort and lower construction cost. Well, <clears throat> that means you're optimizing the building as a system, not the insulation as a component. And that's an example of what we call tunneling through the cost barrier. As I add insulation to my house, I save less and it gets more expensive. That's how insulation works. And you might think that's diminishing returns, except when you add enough insulation and heat recovery and super windows, you get to the point where you don't need any more the furnace, ducts, fans, pipes, pumps, wires, controls, fuel supply arrangements. And it turns out you save more capital costs doing that than you paid to do it. So instead of getting there a long way around, let's tunnel through the cost barrier to that destination. Uh, in industry, it's the same story. It's not quite as big a bonanza. In buildings with integrative design like this, you can triple to quadruple energy productivity. So you end up using radically less energy with 70% more floor space. The internal rate of return is 33%, so the savings are worth four times what they cost. In industry, you only double energy productivity, and it's only a 24% internal rate of return. But these are some of the fattest and lowest risk investments in the whole economy. Uh, a nice in industrial example uh, is the, uh, comes from pumping, a rather unglamorous activity, but it's the biggest use of motors and motors use three-fifths of the electricity. Fans and pumps have the same physics, and, and they, they use half the, the motor energy in the world. Well, <clears throat> there's 35 things you can do to a motor system to save about half the energy with a one-year payback. Most people leave out most of it, so they don't get that result. But first, we ought to start downstream and not waste the energy that the pump and fan are providing. <clears throat> the way to do that is to wring out friction from the pipes and ducts. So in a, in a typical industrial pumping loop, a colleague of ours saved at least 86% of the pumping energy, and it cost less to build, and it worked better. 
just by using fat, short, straight pipes instead of skinny, long, crooked pipes. This is not rocket science. This is good Victorian engineering rediscovered. <laughs> uh, well, what does that mean for the energy, the, 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 um, energy that's three-fifths used in motors of all the electricity in the world? Well, when you feed coal into the power plant, there are so many compounding losses along the way that only a tenth of that energy comes out the pipe as flow. Turn it around backwards and compounding losses become compounding savings. Every unit of flow or friction you save in the pipe saves 10 units of fuel and cost of pollution and global weirding, as Hunter Lovins calls it, back at the power plant. Huge leverage, just like we saw with the car when you save uh, energy at the wheels and it saves seven times that much at the tank. No, it's, it's fascinating work. And I mean, I think uh, people sometimes like hear uh, Amory talk and they say, well, how can this be possible? Like, shouldn't there just be like, you know, people don't leave dollars like lying around uh, on I the found, ground. I found $40 in a parking lot the other day. <laughs> <laughs> can you well, tell me what town it was in? <laughs> <laughs> but I think, you know, it's important to remember that uh, people during the 20th century, I mean, that's when we really started creating an electricity system, and that's when we really started using massive amounts of, of fossil energy. You know, the assumption was that the price was going to keep going down. Uh, for a long time, it was assumed, you know, 1900 to, say, 1965, that there was always just going to be more demand and it was going to get cheaper. Which it did. Which it did. Exactly. And so that's why during, during the 1970s, this became such a big problem because these, you know, 65-year trend suddenly, suddenly reversed itself and, and electricity started to get more expensive. But people haven't necessarily completely internalized that saving energy is probably a good idea. I mean, uh, well, and indeed, the technologies and design methods keep improving faster than we deploy them. So this low-hanging fruit that's mushing up around the ankles is going to spill over the top of our waders pretty soon. You know, the, the efficiency resource keeps getting bigger and cheaper, and that's without even counting integrative design, which is the big game-changer because it gives you expanding returns, not diminishing returns. Uh, but then, of course, once you deploy efficiency comprehensively and systematically in buildings and industries, once you pay attention... And, and we evolve as we are uh, more mature uh, delivery systems for the services. Then a very interesting thing happens. Uh, electricity demand, instead of bumping along at maybe 1% a year growth, goes to about 2% a year shrinkage, or 1% a year shrinkage with the electric autos. And then you find that actually the electric autos are not burdening the grid when you exchange electricity and information between smart vehicles and through smart buildings to a smart grid, you bring to the grid new flexibility and storage resources that make it much easier to integrate solar and wind power. So again, by enlarging the problem, we make it easier to solve together than separately. And uh, so there's two big electricity revolutions. There's... uh, using it far more productively, which we've already sketched, and then making it differently. And together, these are bringing to electricity uh, more numerous and profound and diverse disruptions than any other sector. Basically, you've got 21st century technology and speed colliding head-on with 20th and 19th century institutions, rules, cultures, and business models.
And it's one of those great inflection points, like the Internet or more, where big fortunes are made and lost. Uh, and and the, the good news there is that the renewable revolution <clears throat> that we heard some about in the previous panel is well underway. A third of the world's added generating capacity, uh, I'm sorry, half the world's generating capacity added the last three years has been renewable. And orders for central uh, thermal plants are withering because they have too much cost and too much financial risk to interest investors. Yeah. If you want a, a great pithy line from Reinventing Fire to sort of describe what's happened to the old power plants, uh, this is it. They stopped getting more efficient in the 1960s, bigger in the 1970s, cheaper in the 1980s, and bought in the 1990s, when U.S. ordering rates fell back to Victorian levels. I mean, that's in a, in a nutshell, that's what we're trying to fix on the electricity generation side, right? We, we no longer can, can bank on things getting, getting and, cheaper. And yet, in, in contrast, uh, just last year, uh, private investors worldwide put $151 billion into renewable power other than big hydro. And its installed capacity actually got bigger than the installed capacity of nuclear power worldwide, which has had over a half century to and <laughs> very large subsidies to get there. Uh, and uh, that's because the renewables, other than big hydro, added 60 billion watts last year. Now, as it happens, 60 billion watts is the amount of photovoltaic capacity that by the end of this year, the world will be able to manufacture each year. And that number has been growing about 65% a year for a decade. Uh, the price just... <clears throat> fell so much further. It's below a watt, uh, dollar a watt now for some of the Chinese silicon modules. Uh, but now in, <clears throat> in a dozen states, four companies, uh, some mentioned earlier, uh, will be happy to put solar on your roof, beat your utility bill, no money down. But think about what that means. It's, it's a virtual utility if you combine it with some other equally unregulated products. You don't need anybody's permission to sell them photovoltaics, efficiency, demand response, communications, a little storage. Suddenly, you get this service bundle that does everything for you, the power company does, only cheaper, stable price, more reliable, more resilient, no emissions. Uh, and uh, this sort of thing gives utility executives the heebie-jeebies, but it gives venture capitalists sweet dreams. Right. Well, and it's, you know, one of the many industries that has been broken apart by the Internet, or, or, or at least is vulnerable to being broken apart by this. Yeah, you get the suite of services without necessarily having to have the one company providing them across the board. Yeah, so it's the same kind of bypass that cell phones did to the wireline companies, yeah. only more so. So I want to ask you about something that is in, in Washington, D.C., where I've been for the past year, uh, you're hearing a ton about natural gas, a ton, um, the ability to find shale gas uh, in North American formations um, produced in ways that, you know, 10 or 15 years ago didn't seem like were possible has people just absolutely going nuts uh, in D.C. And in fact, um, a former undersecretary of energy said to me, uh, it's relatively clean, it's abundant, and it's domestic. I don't know that we deserve it, but this is manna from heaven. Um, and I wanted to ask you, um, how do you feel about natural gas produced uh, from shale? Is it manna from heaven, or, or what do you, how would you look at it? I think the jury's out, and I don't think that's quite the metaphor that many people who live in those areas would use. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, 
indeed the ability to get out teensy little bubbles of natural gas finer than a human hair, which is what add up to the, this new resource. Uh, <clears throat> that is, that is a, a real capability. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, some companies practice it a lot better than others. Some with bad practices are giving the industry a bad name and have not yet cleaned up their act. We're just starting to get transparency about additives and sensible practices about non-leaky well completions and what happens to the water and so on. So there are a lot of those kinds of uncertainties that are, are much in the news. What's less well known <clears throat> is that uh, we're extrapolating from uh, fairly short-term data with initially steep uh, falls in the output of a, a well and highly variable between wells and plays. And we're extrapolating that to long-term behavior for very, very large numbers of wells. I think the jury's out on that. It's going to take at least 10 years to figure out what the long-term producibility and price look like and whether the uh, bad actors clean up their act, whether the industry regains public trust, whether the regulators catch up and get independent and, and, and the science develops well and so on. So I was quite happy that in, in our treatment of this subject, uh, by needing a third less gas in 2050 for a 2.6-fold bigger economy, we were hedged. That is, if the shale gas works out well, we can take advantage of it, but if it doesn't, we won't be disappointed because we won't need that much gas. I think that's a good place to be. Amory Levin, everybody. Thank you very much.